This is the third episode of The Gerrymandering Project, sponsored by Casper Mattress. Getting a good night's sleep starts with having the right mattress, and Casper has done the research to get it right. Casper uses design feedback from over 500,000 customers. Their sleep scientists have taken that feedback and created a remarkably supportive bed. You deserve to have a great night's sleep every night. Get a Casper mattress. Go to casper.com and use code POLITICS for $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. That's casper.com code POLITICS. Terms and conditions apply. We just come to Laurel Street, which um, is now the new dividing line for the districts. That's Reggie Weaver. He works with the nonpartisan organization Common Cause to raise awareness about things like gerrymandering on college campuses. We've got a residence hall right here, um, Holland Hall, um, which is on the west side of campus and in the 13th district. And just caddy quarter from it, we have um, Aggie Village, which is which is student residence life um, kind of series of dorms on the east side of campus in the 6th district. I'm Galen Druk. I met Weaver last September at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, known as A&T. North Carolina A&T is, you know, the largest historically black college in, in, in the country. The school has almost 12,000 students, and North Carolina's congressional district lines divide both the campus and surrounding Greensboro, a 40% black city, in two. I just think just th- this split is just ridiculous. I mean, this campus and, and students from this campus, it, it's had a proud history of, of social activism. Um, one of the things that's made it important to the United States and to, to Greensboro in particular is that this is really where um, the sit-in movement of the 1960s really was catalyzed from this campus. The lines dividing the A&T campus are new. They were drawn by Republican lawmakers after the lines they'd previously drawn were struck down by a federal court in 2016. I asked a student, Dashe Hardison, who was sitting along the boundary, if she was aware of the divide. Do you know what congressional district you're in? Um, no, I do not know what congressional district I am in. So this street right in front of you, mm-hmm. um, that's the dividing line between two different congressional districts. Mm-hmm. So A&T, you're in one congressional district now, but if you walk across the street, you'll be in a Really? That's interesting. Why is it like that? You don't um, know? That's a good question. Do you have any ideas of why that might be? Um, gerrymandering. And they um, unfairly divide us so that we can't have, like, one strong vote. I told Hardison that both sides of campus are represented by white Republican men. And she quickly brought up a concept at the heart of the debate over how to draw district lines around minority communities. Kind of knowing that, what do you think about the, the split? Well, I think that it's important, being a HBCU, that we have someone that represents our voice and someone that um, can relate to us and our issues, which are different from um, a white man's problem or a white man's issue or things that he has to go through. I asked Weaver what he thought of Hardison's response. That was disheartening to hear, you know, that someone who, who's, who, who even seemed to be at least generally informed on what the concept of gerrymandering is wasn't aware that it's happening right here in their campus. But even someone who pays attention to congressional maps might have a difficult time keeping up with all the changes around Greensboro. Since the early 90s, the district lines in the area have been redrawn six times, even though there have only been three redistricting cycles. For much of that time, A&T was in the 12th district, which was often described in news reports as the most gerrymandered district in the country. 
this is an infamous district in redistricting litigation. The district has appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, now five times. This is the third installment of the gerrymandering project. In each episode, we zoom in on a different goal of redistricting reform and explore the challenges in achieving it. In this episode, we head to North Carolina to look at racial gerrymandering. As things stand today, partisan gerrymandering is not necessarily unconstitutional, but racial gerrymandering is. The fight to define it, however, has played out in courtrooms for decades. And that's in no small part because it also has significant partisan implications. The evolution of the lines around Greensboro and the A&T University campus tells the story of how that fight has played out. The debate in North Carolina and in many places around the country has often come down to this complicated question. In a state where African Americans overwhelmingly vote for one party, is what's best for African Americans the same as what's best for Democrats? There are two kinds of racial gerrymandering. One is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Here's Richard Pildes, a constitutional law professor at New York University who's litigated the Voting Rights Act before the Supreme Court. States have an affirmative obligation not to dilute the voting power of minority groups. Lawmakers cannot draw lines that break up minority communities and prevent them from electing their candidates of choice. In the gerrymandering parlance from last week's episode, that's often called cracking. The other kind of racial gerrymandering is a violation of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection. If you put people in a district based on their race for any other reason than complying with the Voting Rights Act, that's illegal too. There's a push and pull with respect to the proper role of race in the districting process. Two things are true. First, breaking up minority communities to the point that they can't elect their candidates of choice can be illegal. Second, concentrating them too much without a reason can also be illegal. That definition has its own challenges, which we'll get to. But in order to understand the tension underlying that definition, it's important to know how we got here. From NBC News, Decision 92, Election Night, here are Tom Brokaw and Bryant Gumbel. At this hour, change and hope are the big winners based on what we're seeing so far here tonight, Brian Gumbel. It's a real generational confrontation. When uh, Congressman Watt and Congressperson Eva Clayton was elected, it is the first minority members of Congress we've had for North Carolina in 100 years. Pam Stubbs opened Congressman Mel Watt's office in Greensboro when he was first elected in the early 90s. Watt represented the 12th district, which included the A&T campus. It was drawn based on the Voting Rights Act to help African-Americans elect their candidate of choice. You had to have been there dealing with the people to see them come to the office. We saw older vets, older people to come in. And, and, and they felt that they were coming to their own to understand their problems and their needs. And that if you tell them no, they really believe it because sometimes they did not always trust a decision that they got from others. Before the minority districts were drawn, it had been difficult for African-Americans to get elected. Whites in the 80s were less willing to vote for black candidates. I've heard people call and say things like, you've done a wonderful job telling him on that issue. However, I just can't vote for his kind. I mean, that was just sad. The original Voting Rights Act of 1965 did not deal with how we draw districts. 
The law banned things like poll taxes and literacy tests that prevented black people and poor whites from voting. But about this, there can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. Stubbs moved to Greensboro to attend a and University in the 60s and was intimately familiar with the kind of racism that made the Voting Rights Act necessary. When I first came to North Carolina a and State University in 19... See, now you got me telling my age, I'll tell you. In 1962, it was totally, totally desegregated. You know, there were areas we could go and we could not go. In 1982, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, and that's what led to the creation of minority districts. What Congress did, quite famously in the field, is it made it a violation of federal law to have a voting practice, including a redistricting plan, that had a discriminatory result along racial lines. That's a big change. Last episode, we talked about intent being important. The question was, did the people drawing the maps mean to disadvantage a particular group? But with racial gerrymandering, Congress made it about results. The question there is, did the map disadvantage a particular group? If so, it doesn't matter what they intended. It's not clear Congress knew what it was putting into place. So when the Supreme Court for the first time had to interpret these amendments, the court was really in the position of giving a lot of content to a statute that Congress itself had not kind of fully worked out. This was part of the argument that the Supreme Court heard in 1985. What we are talking about, though, is the ability of blacks to relate to their representatives, to ensure that those representatives are accountable for the way that they represent the interests of blacks. The rule that the court established was this. That if there's racially polarized voting and, as a result, African-Americans are not getting elected and you can draw reasonably compact districts in which they can be made into a majority, then you have an obligation to do that. In many places across the South, wherever you could draw a majority black district, meaning over half of the voting age population was black, you had to. This interpretation went into full swing in the 1991 round of redistricting. Those districts elect African-Americans to Congress And they are often the first African-American representatives from those states since Reconstruction. North Carolina's racially polarized voting made the newly formed 12th district legally necessary. But the district was still controversial because of its shape. That was considered probably the least compact district in the entire United States at the time. In order to create a majority-minority district, it pulled in black communities from all over the state. It looked like a knotted piece of string strewn diagonally across the middle of the state, running from the border with South Carolina almost to Virginia. When people traditionally have been disenfranchised and then have left out the political process and the strength of their vote has not been considered or respected, then sometimes you have to draw things that look ugly to be inclusive, you know. Cute does not make it equal or make it right. Majority-minority districts have historically been some of the least compact districts because they're purposefully drawn over distances to connect specific communities. But there was also another reason that the district was so misshapen. Democrats had not initially wanted to create this additional majority African-American district because they were afraid it was going to threaten a long-serving and important and powerful white incumbent Democrat. 
Democrats who controlled the state legislature had already created one majority-minority district, but they needed another to comply with the VRA. And they were forced to create this second African-American VRA district in North Carolina by the Justice Department, with the Republican Party pushing the Justice Department, saying, this is illegal. They have to create another majority African-American district. And the Democratic Party then said, "Okay, well, we'll create it, but not where we're going to threaten our powerful incumbent. We're going to create it in the middle of the state in this very bizarrely drawn, highly kind of contorted way. That district was eventually struck down by the Supreme Court with the opinion that it was, quote, so bizarre it could not be justified by the Voting Rights Act. This is where the tension between the Democratic Party's interests and the Voting Rights Act begins to become clear. Here's Anita Earls, civil rights attorney and executive director of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice in Durham. Republicans would be coming to conferences with advocates for black voters saying, do you need software? Do you need experts? How can we help you bring these lawsuits? Republicans were proponents of majority-minority districts. And the reason is because given the racial demographics at the time, it was in the Republicans' interest to pack black voters in majority black districts, and it was in the Democrats' interest to spread them out, spread out black voters in as many districts as possible, because that's how they would maximize Democratic districts. African Americans have been reliable Democratic voters for decades, meaning that packing them in a few districts would make it easier for Republicans to win in other districts. Dividing African Americans up, or cracking them, and joining their votes with other white Democrats would boost Democratic chances in more places. But those districts would likely elect white Democratic candidates. I was frequently filing lawsuits against democratically controlled bodies because it was in their partisan interest to divide black voters. And that put white Democrats in jeopardy. These states essentially eliminated districts that had 30 to 40 percent African-American voters. Moderate white Democrats in the South who were being elected sometimes, not infrequently, from these 35 percent African-American districts uh, were essentially wiped out and replaced with white Republicans. There were other trends going on that helped make the South more Republican. But Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report agrees that the Voting Rights Act helped that trend. The Voting Rights Act is one of the biggest reasons why Republicans have dominated the House since 1994. This was a political earthquake with the fault line running right through Capitol Hill. When the dust had settled and the debris had been hauled away, it looked like this. Democrats lost the House they'd controlled for all but four years since 1932. So at the same time more and more African Americans were getting elected, Their political party, the Democratic Party, was losing power overall. Now you're getting more African-Americans elected to the legislature, but in a legislature that is controlled by the other party and is much less likely to adopt the substantive policies those minority voters prefer. Democrats in the South responded by maneuvering district lines to try to maintain power. In the 2000s, they redrew majority-minority districts, such as North Carolina's 12th district, to have below 50% African-American populations. Democrats, they want to use race in a way that advantages Democrats. And the way that that advantages Democrats are not to elect African-Americans. It is to get just enough African-Americans in a district for Democrats to elect white Democrats. 
That's Dallas Woodhouse, executive director of the North Carolina GOP. But on the other side, here's Wayne Goodwin, chairman of the North Carolina Democratic Party. When Republicans used the race of citizens in North Carolina to draw the maps, they decided that they would try to pack as many African-American citizens in congressional districts as they could, but it actually minimized the impact of minority voters throughout the state. You can see how this sort of thing quickly becomes a partisan stalemate. Republicans have staked out the position that Voting Rights Act districts must be true majorities, 50 percent plus one. Democrats have staked out the position that they don't have to be a majority so long as the districts can elect minority candidates. Well, in a conference call to his supporters today, President Obama was blunt, saying there's no way to sugarcoat it. Last night was tough for Democrats. He warned that they most likely face even tougher days ahead. The voting map has now been dramatically redrawn and we're likely to see the emergence of a new generation of Republican power brokers. In the 2010 midterms, for the first time since Reconstruction, Republicans won both chambers of North Carolina's legislature. That gave them the chance to implement their vision of the Voting Rights Act for the first time since it became law. Here's Derek Smith, a political action chair for the North Carolina NAACP and lecturer at A&T University. What they did with the 12th district in Greensboro uh, in 2011 was they took the black voter age population around the 12th district and tried to push those numbers up to above 50 percent to create majority minority districts. Remember, in the 2000s, Democrats had lowered the percentage of the African-American population in the 12th district to the 40s, instead of a true majority. African-American lawmakers were skeptical of pushing those numbers back up. Democratic State Senator Gladys Robinson said a Republican colleague called her during the process. His reasoning when he called me on the telephone was to say, well, Senator, I think that would help African-Americans to get elected. And I said, no, that's not the case. I was elected and I did not have over 50 percent African-Americans. So I don't need that. But under that scheme, more African-Americans were elected to the North Carolina General Assembly. Here's Democratic State Senator and chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, Angela Bryant. You also got to understand there's a seductive quality of this strategy in the black community because it's increasing the number of likely African-American representatives, which is something that is, of course, in many respects, a dream come true in the black community. The ranks of the black caucus in the state house grew by 31 percent under the Republican redistricting scheme adding eight new members. However, we aren't realizing the fact that it's relegating us to a permanent, powerless, partisan minority position. So it's quite complicated. But that initial phase of it is a little bit seductive when you have all these potentially black majority districts. It's like turning our civil rights laws against us, set us back. The new maps also elected more Republicans, supermajorities in both chambers of the state legislature and eventually 10 of the state's 13 congressional seats. The evidence was overwhelming that their primary motivation in drawing the map was partisan. Just this cynical arrogance, we know what's best for black voters, despite what they say, is pretty stunning. But Woodhouse says their goal really was to comply with the Voting Rights Act. I think that our guys did everything they could to draw the districts in according with the law as understood and interpreted at the time. 
the Justice Department agreed. Our maps were pre-cleared by the Obama Justice Department. And so critics of the Republican redistricting plan sued the state, asking that the majority-minority districts be redrawn. The case went to the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of redrawing the minority districts. That was found uh, ruled uh, unconstitutional racial gerrymander. So last year, 2016, the courts ordered the uh, General Assembly to redraw those district lines. And the 12th district, along with the ANT campus, was split up and redrawn. But why? If the Voting Rights Act has been interpreted to mean that you have to draw majority minority districts, Why was the 12th district illegal? When the Obama Justice Department says your maps are good and a federal judge says no, what in the hell is a state supposed to do? The courts seem to have sided with the Democrats and some advocacy groups on this one. If minorities are able to elect their candidates of choice without making up the majority of the district, there's no need to boost their numbers. In fact, that's an illegal racial gerrymander. That creates a delicate balance. Don't consider race at all, and you might break up African-American communities so they can't elect their candidates of choice. Consider it too much, and you might draw a district that packs voters based on their race. All of these things have been reinterpreted since the districts were drawn. No legislature can work like this. If we're supposed to draw majority-minority districts and that's required under the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution, please, God, tell us and tell us how to draw them, and we will do it. So what is the best way to represent minorities in the redistricting process? We'll return to that question in a minute, but first a word from this episode's sponsor, Casper Mattress. There's nothing worse than a bad mattress. You toss and turn all night and wake up achy and sore. Switch to Casper Mattress to sleep cool and comfortable every night. Casper uses design feedback from over 500,000 customers, Their sleep scientists have taken that feedback and created a remarkably supportive bed. Casper's comfort foams guarantee you sleep cool and provide the right pressure relief and spinal alignment so you keep perfectly balanced in cushiony comfort all night. And Casper's support foam brings it all together with long-lasting durability you can count on. It all adds up giving you the best sleep you've ever had. Plus, Casper lets you try it out for 100 nights in your own home risk-free. They ship it to you for free in a box so small you won't believe it holds a mattress. They'll come pick it up for you if you don't like it and refund you everything. No questions asked. You deserve to have a great night's sleep every night. So get a Casper mattress. Go to Casper.com and use code POLITICS for $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. That's Casper.com code POLITICS and get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, let's return to North Carolina. Behind all this legal jockeying is still the fundamental question. What is the best way to represent minorities in America? And that's not just a legal debate. It's a moral and philosophical one. I have never personally been one that think that increasing the numbers of the Black Caucus in Congress, for example, necessarily equated to a plus for the African-American community. Again, Derek Smith, a political action chair for the state NAACP. They can ensure that African-Americans get sent to legislative bodies, and that looks good on Election Day when they can stand up and say, look, look at what we did for you all. We helped get Eva Clayton and Mel Watt into Congress in the 1990s. But on the whole, the effect was that that was when the state began to shift towards 
a Republican-dominated caucus, and that happened all throughout the South. He's in favor of African-American voters influencing various districts. I've always thought that African-American voices that are numerous and loud enough and active in uh, many different places lend to the likelihood that policy decisions uh, will consider African-Americans more than they do. And white and black Democrats can form coalitions to elect minority candidates more easily than they were once able to in North Carolina. Smith points to a famous example. President Obama is a classic example of that. If we confuse together on common interests which affect the governance for the good of all, then it doesn't matter your race. Reggie Weaver of Common Cause tends to agree. An argument has been made that, yes, in in justification of racially packed districts, um, that minority candidates would would not be elected any other way. There may be some truth to that. I don't know. To me, then, the answer isn't to pack districts and weaken the minority voice in other areas. He says that that won't get at the root of the problem. What I personally am more interested in is, you know, why is it? You know, why is it that I, as an African-American, am going to have a weaker chance in a purely competitive district just along partisan lines? You know, why is it? And I think that that gets to deeper questions that we are yet to resolve um, as a country about Um, about race. But the idea that less emphasis should be put on race when drawing districts is not a universal one. Again, here's Pam Stubbs, who worked in Greensboro's 12th district office when it was first won by Mel Watt in 1993. Until the playing ground is level in America, then we will always need our minority districts. And so far, the playing ground is not level. Stubbs is unsure that African-American lawmakers will maintain their ranks if these districts are dismantled. And academic research suggests that that could cause some ripple effects. The presence of minority lawmakers can boost voter turnout among minorities. It can also increase their trust and engagement with politicians. One study, done after Democrats began drawing down the black populations in minority districts in the 2000s, showed that minority members of Congress are more likely to advocate for their community's priorities than white members of the same party. You have to realize most of those minority districts were created after the 1990 census, when there was hardly any minority representation across the country in in Congress. So even though they're safe now, you have to understand why they were created. Case in point, visit the Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro. My name is Cassandra Williams, and I would like to personally welcome you to the International Civil Rights Center and Museum. The museum is situated in the Woolworths department store, where four black A&T University students sat down at a segregated lunch counter. Four college freshmen, all Negroes, were refused service at a Greensboro, North Carolina lunch counter, and the civil rights sit-in was born. So we're here at the lunch counter, and I want you to realize that uh, on this one side... The counter and the stools are at the same exact spot as they were in 1960. It actually gives us the feeling, the experience of being right here at this lunch counter along with those young men and others experiencing what it felt like to be denied service just based on the color of your skin. Throughout the museum, there are other reminders of the injustices committed against African Americans in the South. There was violence. Here, as we see men, women, and children attending what was often advertised 
as an evening's entertainment to come and watch the lynching, the burning of persons uh, African-American descent. It was, uh, in many cases, the mob became judge, jury, and executioner. There were also arbitrary tests meant to disenfranchise black voters. Some states or cities used a jar of beans on the counter, having people to guess the correct number of beans in the jar. It wasn't, though, about the correct number of beans in the jar. It was about the color of a person's skin. Then, when you arrive at the Voting Rights Act section of the museum, there's a striking installment. Now, when we look at this list uh, on the wall here, you see African-Americans elected to federal or statewide constitutional offices. It's a floor-to-ceiling list showing the date African-American lawmakers were elected from each state. Let's look at North Carolina. In the years right after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, we see that there were four Black men elected to represent the state of North Carolina in the House of Representatives. But then we see about a hundred year gap before Mrs. Eva Clayton was elected to represent uh, North Carolina. In state after state across the South, that 100 year gap persisted. We see that same gap in South Carolina. We see it in Alabama, Florida. We see 1871, and then another 100-year gap is there. We can see it in Georgia, in Louisiana, from 1875, and then not until 1991. In many states, that gap only ends in the early 1990s, when states were forced to draw majority Black districts. So it's easy to understand why the conversation about majority-minority districts can be so contentious and emotional. If the law favors unpacking minority districts, it could become more difficult to ensure that African Americans are elected at the same rates that they have been. For example, North Carolina's state legislative map is currently being redrawn to unpack the majority-minority districts. The chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, Angela Bryant, is likely to lose her seat in the redraw. I surely regret uh, losing my district and the coalition that have been formed in that district. I regret that. At the same time, the gerrymandering is, was a burden. She says it's for the best. I'm convinced that even if people like me lose out to have a firm foundation upon which we are doing this redistricting, we will be better off over time. While the tension between creating majority-minority districts and electing Democrats is widely acknowledged, It's important to note that that's definitely not the only thing that's made the South more Republican since the 80s. I think that Democrats failed to take responsibility for losing white voters from the party. I think what's really going on is a shift in white voters' voting preferences that would have happened whether or not black voters would have had a chance to participate. White voters, particularly rural white voters, have fled the Democratic Party in the South. 538's Harry Enton compared exit polls of rural white Southerners between 1988 and 2016. In 1988, Democrats won that vote overwhelmingly. Compare that to 2016, where white voters in small cities and rural areas went for Republican candidates by an over 50 percentage point margin going for Republicans in 2016. That's made the Democratic Party less viable. 
It's also created a dynamic in which the parties are more divided along racial lines. What you essentially have is a nine to one ratio of black voters voting for Democratic candidates for the House, while white voters are going about three to one for Republican candidates. A huge shift. When you look at the data and you look at rural areas in particular, there used to be a real ability for whites and African-Americans to team up to perhaps elect Democratic candidates. That just isn't the case anymore. The areas where African-American and white voters are more likely to join votes are in large cities, where white Democrats are also more likely to vote for minority candidates than white Democrats of decades past. So while packing black voters can still reduce Democrats' influence, the days when they would have joined with white Democrats to elect large majorities for Democrats in the South are over, at least for now. Different people disagree about how much of an emphasis to put on race in the redistricting process. But many of the people I talked to in North Carolina did endorse finding some kind of sweet spot between concentrating and dispersing minority voters. And that's also what the legal doctrine appears to be working towards. Again, Reggie Weaver. I think that there still has to be some consideration about whether or not people of color will have at least a shot at being represented. What the middle ground is, you know, what what the kind of sweet spot is. Uh, I I think that's what we're all trying to come up with. The truth is, it's really difficult to find that middle ground. It depends on the voting patterns of any given location. Here's Dave Wasserman. There's no one standard for what constitutes an effective minority seat. In Charlotte, North Carolina, you could draw a district that's 35% African-American and an African-American candidate of choice would have an excellent chance of winning both a Democratic primary and be virtually assured of winning a seat in a general election. It doesn't work that way in a state like Mississippi, where you have more highly racially polarized voting. You really do need a 50 percent African-American majority seat in the Mississippi Delta in order to elect uh, a candidate of the African-American community's choice there. And it gets more complicated. There are big differences across different minority communities. In Texas, our experience has been that racially polarized voting is still very strong and that for Latino voters to be able to nominate and elect their preferred candidate, they have to be in the majority. Nina Perales, a civil rights attorney who represents Latino voters in Texas, is wary of attorneys associated with the Democratic Party who have litigated against true majority-minority districts. There are really important differences between trying to draw a Democratic district and trying to draw a minority opportunity district because often we see racially polarized voting even within Democratic primary elections where minority voters may prefer a minority candidate and white voters may prefer a white candidate just trying to draw Democratic districts by spreading minority voters out isn't going to yield equal opportunity in places like Texas. Dallas Woodhouse, executive director of the North Carolina GOP, thinks trying to establish a legal sweet spot is unworkable. What at least a plurality of the court has tried to set up when it comes to the use of race is a Goldilocks standard. Not too much, not too little, but just right but they won't tell you what just right is. Anita Earls, who has spent decades suing both parties, says drawing districts that appropriately consider race does take thought, but it can be done. 
you have to know what voting patterns are, who's been elected, what the census data is. But it's not like you have to sit and agonize over every district about, gee, what should the racial percentage of this district be? Courts haven't endorsed this. But if you wanted to figure out the sweet spot for a district, the math would work something like this. On one side, you have a bumper of 25%. 25% would be the minimum threshold beyond which a minority population could possibly comprise the majority of the vote in one party's primary. And that party could possibly comprise the majority of the vote in a general election. Essentially, you have to figure out if minority voters can make up the majority of one party's primary, and then whether other voters will join them to elect the minority's choice in the general election. The other bumper would be 50%. If you're at 50% of the population in any given district, then you have a really good chance to dominate both the primary and the general election. Where the sweet spot lies between 25% and a true majority, 50% plus one, depends on a number of factors. The variables involved can range from the nature of the white vote to the citizenship rate of the minority group to the turnout rate of that minority group. How the rest of the district votes is key. If you have a white vote that's overwhelmingly Democratic, they could potentially overpower a minority group in a Democratic primary. If you have a white vote that's overwhelmingly Republican, well, they could overpower that minority group in a general election. If you have a white vote that's somewhere in between, that might provide a minority candidate a good chance of winning a race in a district that's less than 50% minority. These factors will change from place to place and across time. Turnout can even change from one election to the next. North Carolina 12 today has a black voting age population of 35%. Alma Adams, a Democrat who wins overwhelming shares of African-American voters, holds that district comfortably. North Carolina's 12th district no longer includes Greensboro, but instead is concentrated around Charlotte. When the district was first drawn in the 90s, it was unlikely that African-American voters could have elected their candidate of choice while making up only 35% of the population. But voting patterns have changed. Because of how case-specific this can be, Wasserman doesn't see an end in sight for litigation of minority districts. Courts have wrestled for years with the idea of what constitutes an effective district for candidates of a minority community's choice. The reality is there's no bright line, and there never will be. Angela Bryant agrees that there's no simple solution. I think in a democracy, a representative democracy and republic like we have, I don't think there's some magic panacea. Democracy is messy and a lot of work. It's a full-time job for some, somebody, some set of bodies, to help keep it going. And in many ways, that's also one of the legacies of the larger fight for civil rights in America, something echoed in the final exhibit of the Greensboro Civil Rights Museum. So in our last gallery, we have this wall of faces, a mosaic of people who were a part of the civil rights movement, but also some who worked to bring an end to slavery. It shows us a great part of the power of people, ordinary people, we might say, who worked together to bring about extraordinary change. The faces all come together to form a mosaic of President Obama. When we look at these faces, though, we are reminded that though we say the civil rights movement was 
a certain number of years is in the past, it reminds us that there's still work to be done. If we compare this week's debate over the role of race with last week's debate over the role of partisanship, there are two important lessons about redistricting that we can learn. First, in Wisconsin, we focused on partisan bias. Democrats there wanted maps that don't inherently give one party a leg up. While there are times when the Voting Rights Act is in conflict with that goal, in many places around the country, compliance with the Voting Rights Act can mean packing minorities, and by proxy Democrats, into certain districts, which can help disproportionately elect Republicans outside of those districts. It's one of many trade-offs in the redistricting process. Second, the Wisconsin Democrats' case centered on being able to measure and delineate what is fair when it comes to partisan bias. As we've seen from the Voting Rights Act, it can be very difficult to say what is fair in the debate over how much to concentrate a certain group of voters in any particular district. If the Supreme Court rules that partisan gerrymandering could be unconstitutional, then the legal fights we'll see over partisan gerrymandering will make the courtroom battles that we've seen over racial gerrymandering look like small potatoes. After listening to the partisan conflict in this series so far, you might be thinking, what if a commission draws the maps instead of lawmakers? Well, that's what we'll investigate next week when we head to Arizona. The state has a five-person bipartisan commission draw the maps, with the explicit goal of fostering competitive elections. Here's a sneak peek. I want to say right now, forgive me, I'm not going to use niceties, because I am so upset over this situation. Arizona's redistricting process in 2011 was as close to a brawl as you'll ever see redistricting get. Non-competitive elections really means you don't have representative democracy. It was scary, frankly, and I really didn't realize that we were going to get that kind of response. With 80% Democratic districts or 80% Republican districts uh, and no competition, uh, that that leads to more and more polarization in Congress and it gets harder and harder to get things done. What you saw (laughs) was a lot of pitchforks and torches here in Arizona. Some of the things today I haven't talked about before. That episode coming next Thursday. This episode was reported and produced by me, Galen Druk, and edited by Chadwick Matlin. Our politics editor is Micah Cohen, and our interns for this episode were Kate Bakhtiarova and Alice Wilder. In reality, they were, for all intents and purposes, associate producers. Ann Pope did the engineering and scoring. A special thank you to Tony Chow, Jody Avergan, David Wasserman, Vanessa Diaz, Donna Lewis, and Josh Cohen. Remember to check out our Facebook group, The Gerrymandering Project, where you can share your experiences with gerrymandering, ask questions, and help answer some of our questions. Go to Facebook and search The Gerrymandering Project. You can also get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com or, of course, send a tweet. If you're a fan of the show, leave the Politics Podcast a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store. When you leave a rating, it helps our rankings, which helps others discover the show. Or just tell someone about this series. Of course, you can find our weekly politics podcast in this feed, and we'll be back next Thursday with more of The Gerrymandering Project. Until then, thanks for listening.